Well, we continue on the long journey through 1 Samuel. If you are new with us or you've been gone for a few weeks, you know that um, we have been for a while, um, we have been in 1 Samuel, but recently we have been kind of immersed in the running of David, King Saul, uh, who has been dethroned, but that has yet to become a, a realization and that God said, hey, you ain't going to be king forever. Uh, David's going to be king. And now it's this awkward period for chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter. We see God has a promise. There's going to be a switch in kingship, but it just has not taken place yet. And so tonight we're going to continue on uh, in this journey and Saul is going to chase David and we're going to talk about (laughs) the same sort of stuff as we have for a while. But we're talking Primarily, theme-wise, we're talking about uh, discovering God's plan. Discovering God's plan. Now, you may notice, may not, that I didn't write discovering God's plan for you. Um, I think that's a lot of times where we go wrong in seeking God's plan is that we make it more about us than God more about our desires than his plan. And so it's true that you are part of God's plan, a beautiful part of God's plan. But we're going to see David in desperate need to know what God's will is. Do I turn left? Do I turn right? In chapter 22, we see he told the king in Moab where he dropped his parents off and said, please take care of them, watch them until I see what the Lord will do for me. So he had to wait on the Lord. And it is marked in chapter 23. David's life is marked and this journey is marked by being uncomfortable. Uncomfortable. You see, God's plan by design is uncomfortable. The very fact that you have to leave your old life and take up your cross to sacrifice what you could have if you follow your own path as your own God. You've got to get uncomfortable in leaving that and following the Lord and his plan. I don't know if any of y'all think about high school very much. I don't, but on occasion, I think about my high school days. And I don't know what your uh, high school life was like, what it was marked by, but mine was being uncomfortable. One of the areas that I was uncomfortable in, uh, but it was a good uncomfortable, was sports. I liked football. I liked basketball. I liked to be active. It was good. But I look back at those days, and I remember we had so much weird motivation. And now that it's football season and I'm remembering this kind of stuff again, so much weird motivation. If you remember, maybe maybe this isn't you. If not, just stay with me for a minute and uh, laugh at my stories. But I remember just being in the weight room and having other guys around me just screaming at me for one more rep, screaming at me to push myself a little bit harder, running down that track, go a little bit further. And then you get to the game and you have your coach screaming at you before the game at halftime, just screaming, screaming, screaming. It is the epitome of just being uncomfortable. But yet the weird thing about it is I look back at it and I'm kind of thinking to myself, I miss that. I kind of like that. What in the world would make someone look back at a season of being uncomfortable and say, I like being uncomfortable? You see, if you were part of teams like that, you knew that it wasn't just about you. What made you desire was the glory of the team. 
a purpose, something bigger than yourself. And when you were called to something bigger than yourself, you had a motivation to want to serve under that goal. I think a lot of us get out of high school sports. We get into the real world. We uh, see those as the glory days. Isn't that funny how we call it the glory days? Because we strove and we were uncomfortable for a glory, something bigger than ourselves, the fame of that football team, that volleyball team, whatever it might have been. And yet we as believers have the glory of the Lord, the ability to make his name famous, to shine his light. And yet it just doesn't seem like we're all that uncomfortable in his mission. David's uncomfortable. David's running around tonight. He's uncomfortable in chapter 23. Jesus' ministry. You look at his life on earth. First 27 years, first 33 or 30 years looks looks pretty pretty normal. Then he goes on a three-year camping trip with a bunch of teenagers. He has Pharisees hating on him. He has the religious hating on him. He's called the devil. He's called all kinds of things. He says Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Of course, the, the, the pinnacle is the cross. Nothing says uncomfortable more than the cross. And what we see in this is that his most effective time on earth, smack dab in the middle of God's plan, was more uncomfortable than anything else he'd ever experienced. And it's no different for you and I. You're not seeing the power of God in your life. It might be because you're not lining up with God's plan. And one way to find out if you're lining up with God's plan, are, are, are you uncomfortable for the sake of the gospel? So as we walk through this tonight, I want you to ask yourself, am I giving up my own comfort for the sake of bringing comfort to those around me? Bringing the gospel to those around me. God's got a plan, and it is beautiful albeit uncomfortable. So let's walk through this, chapter 23. Now they told David, behold, the Philistines, remember Philistines are kind of the arch rival of the Israelites, the Philistines are fighting against Kilah and are robbing the, thresh, the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, go and attack the Philistines and save Kilah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. Now how much more then if we go to Kalah against the armies of the Philistines? They were afraid because Saul was chasing them. And they were not even as big as the other part of the Israelites. What are they going to do against the Philistines? So then in verse 4, David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Kalah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Kilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Kilah. First thing we see in discovering God's plan is you got to do what you were already told. You got to do what you were already told. This might not make sense when you first think about it because you say, wait, so you're, I'm supposed to do what I've already discovered? Well, yeah, I think for a lot of us, that is the case. We do what we already know what to do. You see, first great step for David, right? 
He sees, and he's got the heart of a warrior. He is, he is a king, even though he's not the king at this point. He, he wants to fight because this is the middle of the summertime, and the wheat fields in the Middle East are just ripe. They're ready. The harvest is ready to come. And the Philistines, being three miles away from this area, um, they see that this is a great place to plunder and a great stronghold, and so they're going to come fight. They're going to take it. And David, having a warrior's heart, says, I know it is not God's plan for them to have this. I know that. He, he just knows it is not God's plan for outsiders to come in and take over the promised land. He knows it. And so great first step, he inquires of the Lord. If you look through Judges, you look through First uh, Samuel, all kinds of places, you'll see it being, um, it, it's God's will for the Israelites to seek God prior to going into battle. They needed to seek God going into battle in case he tells them not to. So David does that. But then what happens? He freezes in fear. Now what we don't know is, does he freeze in fear because he is scared? Based on everything else we know about David, probably not. Or because his men are scared. They're, they're wondering, what? How do we know that God really spoke to you? Because remember, the priests aren't around right now. They just got killed at the end of chapter 22. There's one that's the son of, of Ahimelech that we're going to see. Abiathar, he comes in verse 6, though, so he's not there. They got this epod deal that was not only a linen, but it was also this tool that they would use to inquire of the Lord. They, they don't have all this going on right now. So they're questioning, David, are you really hearing from God? Are you really hearing from God? And then he asks again. And God tells him the same thing. He heard from God once after his gut already told him what he knew he should do. He inquires, he hears from God, and then he has to ask a second time. If you got kids, anyone in this room, you got kids, how many times do you love it when your kids ask again after you've already told them what to do? You say, no, you know what? <laughs> In fact, you're asking me twice is more of an issue than whatever I'm asking you to clean up in your room or whatever I'm commanding you to do right now. We've got to do what we're already told. Are you fully aware of what so much of Scripture tells us? Are you freezing right now in fear? Are you avoiding being obedient to the things that you know God has already told you? Because here's the thing. When we look at Scripture as a whole, and this is so crucial, and, and this, is, this is important to grasp, this book alone, all right, this gives us God's general will for all of mankind, God's plan for humanity. So if God never spoke a word to you about his specific will, right, so how you specifically play into his plan, I believe you, you still got enough. <laughs> if he doesn't say another word to you for the rest of your life, you still got enough knowledge of God's general will for all of mankind that you're to make disciples, that you're to love your neighbor, that you're supposed to encourage, that you're command after command after command, that you could live a godly life without hearing one more word from him. You see, I think when it comes to freezing in fear, when it comes to avoiding doing the things we know God already wants us to do, it comes in a, a couple different forms. For some of us, it is that, that we're so bent, we're so focused on God's specific will for our life, specific plan for our life, that we put off his general plan because we think we're being trained for something specific. Here, let me give you a good example. You see it with maybe, maybe college students, right? 
How often do college students go to college and they're out from their hometown and, and they go maybe on Sundays to the local church, but they don't really get plugged in. They don't serve. And if you ask them, say, hey, why don't you serve? And they say something along the lines of, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm only going to be here for a while. And, I, and if you go a little deeper, you'll find out, well, I, I'm, I'm still seeking what God wants me to do. I don't know what I'm going to do after college, and I'm still trying to figure out what God's plan for me is. But you could waste, what, two, four, six, eight years under that deception? If you're in a place for three weeks, does God, through his revealed word already, not tell us to serve one another, to make disciples? You can't wait for the specific will at the expense of his general will that he's already told you about. But then I think there's another way that we see it where we freeze a little bit. And it's when God's specific will is so uncomfortable for us that we just get second opinion after second opinion after second opinion. Which would be third opinion, fourth opinion. I'm mad they didn't grade today. You ever had a conversation with a friend where you came to get advice from them and you were explaining your situation and these words came out of your mouth? Well, I know what God wants me to do, but. I know what God wants me to do, but like you already knew coming into the conversation what he wanted you to do. You're just looking for someone to tell you maybe you don't need to do that. But isn't it funny? That when you know what God has already asked you to do in life, you open that word and you study it, and you're like, man, this is what he's telling all of us to do, to love one another, to, to make disciples. Okay, okay. Or if he says a specific word to you, like, okay, here, here is your role. You're going to go left here, and you're going to be a disciple maker in this form or fashion. And you say, you know what, I, I just don't want to do that. Isn't it interesting how God has a way of just wrenching your gut? might be two months down the road, three months, six months, and you're just like, something ain't right between me and God. And he has a way of bringing that back up. Not that he's trying to make you feel guilty, but he's saying, you can't take steps two, three, and four if you don't come back and focus on the first step I gave you. And in our minds, we say what? We say, but that was just too hard. I want to get to the ones that are more comfortable, right? Uh, it's kind of like this. Several years ago, after I was a pretty new believer um, and I went out to Colorado Springs, and I was with a leader in the church in Hutchinson, and we were out hiking uh, outside of Colorado Springs in an area called Garden of the Gods. Maybe you've been there, it's kind of this desert area, and it's a, a beautiful place. And we went on a hike there, and of course with the altitude, uh, not being used to it, and just being in, in Colorado, we were thirsty. And we got back to my car, and I remember he asked me, because he didn't have any water, he said, do you have any, any water? And I didn't have any, like, brand-new bottles of water there. But I remembered that behind my seat, I had some trash, and I had, like, a half-full thing of water, things that I had had for probably a couple months, but I avoided getting rid of them. For whatever reason, I was lazy, and I knew I need to get rid of these things, but I just never did. And then you're on a road trip, and you're like, well, hey, maybe I could use that old bottle of water. So he sees it back there. He immediately reaches for it, and he... <coughs> He says, can I have this water? I said, yeah, dude, enjoy. Now, you got to know, for any of you who have heard my, my skunk stories, my, my sniffer, it doesn't work super well. And so, like, I'm not necessarily perceptive to what rank 
water might smell like in my car, but I can imagine, because you know when you leave something in your car and it gets hot and it gets cold and it gets hot and it gets cold and it's just like, oh, this is, this is pond water <laughs> that is in my car right here. And I wasn't ever going to drink it again. I just hadn't thrown it away, right? And he drinks it without thinking twice. He takes a gulp of it and then he goes, oh my, what is this? And he starts like dry heaving in the front seat of my car and I'm looking at him like, oh my gosh, sorry, dude. Yeah, it's old. It's old. I should have thrown it away a long time ago. He just looked at me like I was crazy. Why have a bottle of water in there when you know you can't drink it because it'll just make you sick? Listen, it reminded me. I need to have that taken care of. I need to get rid of that a long time ago. This is what happens when God tells you to do something. Get rid of this sin. Just take care of this. Overcome this. God wants you to have victory in this. And you say, you know what? It's just too uncomfortable right now. I'm just going to put it on the back burner. And you've convinced yourself it's okay to keep walking that way. And what happens is he makes it sick for you. And you got that feeling in your gut. And you're just like, I don't know that I can do anything else until I take care of what God has told me to do. It's a big deal. It'll make you sick. You got to do whatever God has already told you to do. Verse 6. Oh, this is my favorite part. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, so this is the priest, had fled to David to Kalah. Remember, all of Abiathar's uh, aunts, uncles, everyone was dead from that city in Nob where Saul had killed everybody. He had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Kilah, And Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to go to war, to go down to Kalah to besiege David and his men. And David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him, and he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Kalah to destroy the city on my account. And will the men of Kalah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Then David said, will the men of Kalah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Kalah, and they went wherever they could go. And when Saul was told that David had escaped from Kalah, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Zegeth. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. Okay, second thing you see in discovering God's plan is you got to ask Jesus. <laughs> you got to ask God, not your circumstances. You got to ask the Lord, not your circumstances. So, Saul does what many of us do when it comes to discovering God's plan and his will. He's got something that we love in Christianity in, in America today. It's open door theology, right? He sees the circumstances as the driving and primary indicator of what God wants. He says way back in, in verse 7 and 8, he said that God, this is Saul saying, 
God has given him, David, into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. So Saul's sitting there looking and saying, David has been in the the nooks and the crannies of the mountains. I haven't been able to find him at all. And now he comes to fight for these people in Kalah, and he has put himself in the middle of a city. And we're going to come, and we're going to destroy him. Like, that's what that means. No, hey, I need to talk to God about this. No, let me take another mode and see exactly what God wants. No, I just see kind of what looks like is happening, and I'm going to make my decision based on that. How many of you all, be honest, how many of you have made a decision, a major decision, based simply on your circumstances? Something that you knew, I want want to know God's will, but you basically were just looking for open doors. Right? You you were wondering, okay, um, you know what? I'm trying to figure out whether they want me to take that job. But the fact that they offered it, and they offered it at this time, when I was thinking about jobs, even though most of us would say we think about stuff like that on a regular basis. So I just took the job. Or, well, (laughs) it wasn't like we were looking to buy a house, but the house just came on the market. You see how, like, you could justify all kinds of decisions based on open doors. Here's the problem. The devil can open doors. Let's be honest. If you wanted to go right now and blow all of your money in Vegas, is there not an open door for that? Yes. If you wanted to do just about anything, you could justify, hey, there's an open door for that. You could justify all kinds of sin by saying, well, it was late at night and she was here and I was there and I just, I wouldn't have done it except we were there and the circumstance, I mean, you could get yourself in all kinds of trouble if your circumstances, yet how many times do you see Christian brother and sisters talking about what God is doing in their life and God's plan and, and it comes down to, well, God opened a door. Now listen, you could go through scripture and you can find lots of passages where God opened a door and it was God's will for them to walk through it. You could find that. The problem is when we make that our primary and in many cases only mode for seeking God's plan. Because here's the, okay. I don't know if I'm hitting home on this. Remember, Saul is godless, right? He's supposed to be following God, but he's really not. The primary issue for you and I to make open door theology our primary way of making decisions. If there's an open door, I walk through it. The primary issue is that we're seeking signs and circumstances and not the Lord. We're seeking something that affirms the next step and not the Lord himself. And the second biggest issue in it is that even if you were saying, you know what, I I do make most of my decisions based on circumstances alone even though you obviously know through prayer, through Bible study, through friends, through all kinds of ways God speaks to us, but, but I'm going to take that one mode, right? The second biggest issue is even if you're saying, hey, I do look for open doors, and, but I actually want, I want God's will. Then why are we choosing, out of all the modes God speaks to us in, why are we choosing the most impersonal of them all? Like you go to him in prayer, and it's just straight up you and him. It, it fosters the intimate relationship God created you to have. 
But if you're about open doors, you're saying, what is the, what's the best way for me to know what God wants me to do without me actually talking to God? It's like sending a friend in to tell your parents that you're going to go stay at someone else's house when you're a little kid. Like, hey, just go, hey, will you ask my mom when you're in there if I can stay at your house tonight? It's like, no, you do it. Get in there. Have an actual relationship with your mom or dad. You say, that don't fly. And yet that's what it's like when we have open door theology. Again, I'm not saying, again, that God doesn't use open doors. He opens doors, and sometimes it's his will. But we've got to be sure that it's not the old devil opening doors as well. You see, David has another approach, and it's prayer. But before you tune me out, because it sounds like another just prayer thing, sermon, it was specific prayer. It was really specific, was it not? Some of us, we struggle to hear from God and discover his plan because we'll pray, but we pray um, vague prayers. And when you pray a vague prayer, what it's really saying is you don't really expect God to answer you. Right? Like, if I, if I, if I simply said, hey, Tara, what do you want to eat? Um, over the course of the next year. (laughs) Would I really expect an answer to that? She would be like, be a little more specific, right? Next year, I don't really think I'm going to answer you if you ask me, what are we going to have for dinner over the course of the next year? Like, narrow it down. Give me a week somewhere in there, right? I know this is silly, but is this not what some of our prayers look like? And I think they're an indictment that we, we really do not expect God to answer. David's prayer was so specific. God, do you want me to do this? Specifically this. Yes, I want you to do it. Okay, God, will the people in this city around me deliver us into the hands of Saul? Yes, they will deliver. Like he got specific answers because he asked specific prayers. This is huge. When it comes to your relationship with God, I'm telling you what, the depth that you can dive into between a vague general prayer, not that they're always evil, right, and you being specific, you know where so much of the healing comes? If you're broken, it's in specific prayers. There's a big difference between God, heal me, although that's a beautiful prayer, and God, I am broken inside. My gut is twisting and turning. God, I am so frustrated with this situation and this particular person, and when they say this, it kills me in my core. God, I don't know what to do. I've tried this, this, and this. Father, I need specific answers, Lord, and just getting real with God. And you say, Ryan, are you blowing this up? Is this whole specific prayer thing too much? Listen, it's not. It is the heartbeat of the Father. My son, Silas, you guys know him. I talk about him all the time. Little two-and-a-half-year-old boy. His favorite phrase right now is, I don't know. His cute little voice. Every time I ask him something, he says, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But I come home every day, and I know, because I talked to Tara, what in general they did that day. I'll come home at lunch, and I'll say, like today, I'll say, hey, buddy, what did you do today? I knew. I already knew what he did, but I asked him. And he said, I don't know. And I said, well, did you see anyone? I got a little more specific. He said, I don't know. 
I said, what was there? These people in our house that, that were here to see you? And I rifled off their names. And, and I asked him, and he said, I don't know. And I asked him another question specific to it. And then he stops and he looks at me. We're walking down the stairs. He looks at me and he says, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> I just laughed and Tara heard it. We just giggled to ourselves. But I was being that, that nagging parent who wanted to get specifics. Here's the deal, guys. I already knew his specifics. But I love the little boy, and I want a relationship with him where he can tell me the specifics. That's why, like, that's the beauty of the relationship. And sometimes we talk ourselves out of specific prayers because we know, well, God knows. God already knows about all my circumstances. God knew about David's circumstances, did he not? And yet the heartbeat of a relationship is in the details. Daddies care about details. Our Father cares about details. Verse 15. And David saw that Saul had come up, come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horesh, and Jonathan went home. Third thing we see in discovering God's plan is you've got to listen to the truth bearers. You've got to listen to the truth bearers. So now, if you've been tagging along with us for a while, you know, Jonathan, Saul's son, David, they are, they are buddies. They've made like six million covenants at this point in 1 Samuel. Every time they're together, it seems like they're making a covenant that they are going to be in the kingdom together. They love each other. It's got a brotherhood thing. They're both warriors. They both walk by faith. And so he comes, David, and he, or excuse me, Jonathan, and he comes to David to give him some truth. You've got to believe he must have been discouraged. David must have been discouraged because it is, not, is it not the same old lines here, right? Is it not, hey, verse 15, David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. How many times have we read that? Huh, like every single week, we're reading the same thing. And that's, if I'm exhausted preaching this, how much more was David exhausted living this? Someone's after me nonstop. I can't rest. Yet he's being guided by the Lord. And yet here's Jonathan coming out saying, I got I to gotta encourage you. You see, sometimes the key to discovering God's plan is actually rediscovering God's plan. So many of us, we grew up in the church, we know about God's general plan, but you know what it's like. Life will beat you down. Sometimes you can be smack dab in the middle of God's will and you can still feel exhausted. Am I wrong? Right? You know, you know what that's like. Sometimes you just need to hear God's promises and God's truth. It is refreshing. It is water pouring over your soul. Jonathan knows David needs to hear this. Jonathan knows, you know what? I can't just be a friend who's there when it's convenient. I got to come to him in his time of discouragement. I got to give him truth. I got to give him truth. You know, truth is key for so many reasons, but if you're like me, you found yourself in situations over the years, maybe even this week, 
where you maybe had a gut feeling about what God's plan was in a particular situation, but then you get immersed so much so in the messy details that you start to lose focus of the truth. Have you ever been in a situation where you kind of had a gut feeling going in, but by the time you talked to her or him or whatever, by the time it was over, you just kind of shook your head and, and rubbed your noggin and said, <laughs> I think I'm more confused now than I was two days ago. So easy to lose sight of the truth. Let me get practical, though. Let me give you, let me give you five quick things that we see from Jonathan and, and David in delivering truth, in delivering truth. The first thing we see is that to be a truth bearer, to be a godly truth bearer, it's got to be driven by love. We know that these two dudes, they got a bond. They love one another. Jonathan knows he's risking his life because his dad has an eye on him and his dad wants to kill David. And yet he's saying, I have got to go. I'm going to risk my life to bring truth to this person. Is that not the heart of a disciple maker? Like you got to say, if you're going to go overseas to make disciples, if you're going to go next door to make disciples, the heart is, I, I'm going to get uncomfortable. I'm going to risk everything to bring truth to somebody. Second thing is that it's got to be spirit-led and not flesh-led. Here, here's what I mean. <laughs> if he's going to go and talk to David, he must have known David needed encouragement in that moment. And, and here's the problem. So many times when you're making disciples, when you're actually walking someone through truth, do you not... Come on, be real with me. Do you not sometimes just tell them what you think they need to hear instead of what the Spirit's telling you to tell them? Sometimes they're not even done talking. And you know in your mind, I know what I'm going to say. And yet you, you don't even know if that's what God in this moment wants you to tell them. If you're going to be a, a godly truth bearer, you've got to be Spirit-led in giving the truth because not all truth is needed in that moment. It's the truth God wants them to hear. The third thing, and the third thing in delivering truth to someone is that it's got to be well-rounded. What I mean is, in this passage here, it's cut and dry. I'm going to encourage you with the promises of God. But if you look back at chapter 20, when David and and Jonathan were talking. They had that big 40-some verse conversation about the junk going on. And so they talked about hard stuff. Now, when they meet, they're talking about good stuff. Some of us, we like to be truth bearers. But sometimes we take a little bit too much pleasure in delivering correction. <laughs> Do we not? Sometimes we, we make our truth very narrow. And people... In, our, in their eyes, we lose credibility. Because you've got to be well-rounded in giving them truth. You've got you to remind them of both God's will and the things that it's going to be uncomfortable for you to align with this, but also, also what ways are they currently following Christ? Like affirm them, encourage them, challenge them. It's got to be well-rounded. If you're the one who's always bearing bad news, your heart and being a truth-bearer is not about the truth. It's about being better than that person. It's about putting that person in their place. And that's not the way that God wants his truth bearers to walk. The fourth one that I would tell you is it's got to be relevant. 
It's got to be relevant truth. Notice how Jonathan didn't ramble. He went specific and straight to the point. Here's the deal. My dad's going to kill you, but we are going to reign together. You're going to be king. This is how it's going to go. Boom. Blood brothers. Let's do this. Let's go hang out and eat some pizza or something. Like It was just very, very concise and to the point. If you don't know when you're discipling someone, if you don't know what you're supposed to say, sometimes it's okay to say, I don't know. I don't know. And last but not least, I'd throw this one in there as well. When you're a truth bearer, you got to point to the new covenant. Now, they made a new covenant, right? They made a new covenant. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about Jesus being the better David who gives us a new covenant. When you remind someone, when you speak truth to someone, it better include the promises that we have in Christ Jesus, their new identity, their power through the Holy Spirit, the beautiful promises and blessings that we have through Christ. This is why we, as brothers and sisters, deliver truth to one another. Verse 19. So we're going to be truth bearers, we're going to ask God, not our circumstances. In verse 19, it says, Then the Zephites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds? Remember, the strongholds, is a, that's a geographic area. At Horesh, on the hill of Hakalah, which is south of Jeshimon. How, now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire, to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul said, May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Go and make yet more sure. No one see the place where his foot is, and who has come and who has seen him there, for he had has told me that he is very cunning. See therefore and take note of all the lurking places where he hides, and come back to me with sure information. Then I will go with you. And if he is in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. Fourth thing we see, don't trust the easy road. Don't trust the easy road. When it comes to God's plan, it ain't going to be an easy road. <laughs> it ain't, ain't going to be an easy road. If you're going to align yourself with his plan, it's going to be rough. You see, Saul actually does something halfway decent here. The first couple verses that we read, Saul is saying, Hey, you, these dudes from Zephalah or wherever, you guys are coming, the Zephites, you guys are going to come tell me that you know where David is? And it's like, this is good. You ever had someone promise you something that seemed too good to be true? There's a reason why that's an old adage. It's too good to be true. Probably is. Probably, probably not true. And so he sees that, and he's like, oh, this is good. Blessed be you. Like, you've had compassion on me. This is great. And you see him buying in a little bit. Then Saul takes a step back and says, no, why don't you go? Why don't you go and, and just make sure you know where David is and come back, and then we'll talk some more. We'll talk some more. Even Saul, the dude who doesn't follow the Lord, is saying, I can't trust the easy road. This is too good to be true. Something is a little bit sketchy. You see, and you guys know this, signing up to follow Jesus is a promise in and of itself that this is going to be a hard road, right? This is going to be a hard road. 
the Messiah himself is marked as not just a servant, but what? The, the prophecy, the Messianic prophecy in Isaiah, we call it the, the suffering servant. The suffering servant. His life, his road. God's place in his own plan is marked by suffering. Church history, looking back, you see the church is built, as it's been said before, by the blood of the martyrs. Suffering is a key component to following the Lord. Because there is glory in suffering that human beings would see other human beings giving up their life to follow something that if it's not true, they're flat out crazy. And yet God's goodness, God's love, God's grace draws us in and makes us want to give up everything to the point of suffering, whatever the cost. (laughs) How many of y'all have claimed this promise before? (laughs) This is a good one. In 2 Timothy 3.12, it says, yes, this is Paul talking, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It's a promise. How many of you got that on your refrigerator? You got a, you got a bumper sticker with 2 Timothy 3 on there? Like, no, we don't. We don't. It's like, okay, so I'm promised persecution, Right? But then Jesus, he takes a a step further in the Beatitudes. And he says in Matthew chapter 5, he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when they revile and persecute you. And all the other Beatitudes, he says, blessed are once for each thing. But yet when he talks about persecution, he says it twice. (laughs) Like, it doesn't make sense. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Matthew 5, verses 10 and 11. You look at the disciples in Acts. After Jesus resurrected from the dead, then goes, ascends into heaven, and they go making disciples. They get thrown into prison. They get beat, and they say what? Peter, John, they're saying, hey, we are just, we're blessed to be counted among those who have been beaten for the Lord. They're rejoicing. And yet you and I know that the sinful heart desires in every daily decision, in the big plans, and the small plans, our, our, our sinful hearts desire the easy road. We desire the easy road, and we trade a glorious heavenly comfort that we know, we know when we get out of our comfort zone, when we walk away from our life to follow Jesus, as uncomfortable as it is, we know there's a heavenly comfort that the Lord gives us, and we say, we trade that in for this, this earthly, temporary fading away comfort of staying right where we are right now. It's going to cost you. Be very skeptical if your life is always headed down the easy path. Some of us brag about having the easy path. Some of us spend most of our prayers praying for the easy path. I don't know what we gain by the easy path. Has God brought glory by the easy path? I look at some of the decisions in my life, and I could give you a million in the opposite direction of us taking the easy path. So this isn't a holier-than-thou thing. But I remember when we went to... um, 
seeking the Lord's will and, and going to seminary years and years ago. And we could have taken online classes or we could pick up and move from Kansas to Virginia. And we sensed we got to get uncomfortable. God wants us to move. Why? We could do it online. We could still serve at Crosspoint. We had good jobs. We had a nice house. God said, get up and move. You need to not just learn about me. You need to learn about getting uncomfortable here. Because that's what ministry is. Seminary can't make you get uncomfortable for him. It'll teach you about other people getting uncomfortable for the Lord. But it can't make you want that. When we get to Virginia, Tara, as a nurse, thank God, thank God for that income during that time. We, um, she came out and she applied, and three different places wanted to hire her as a nurse, right off, like right off the bat. Got all three job offers at the same time. One was the exact same position, same pay, same everything as what she had here in Salina. And it was good, it was solid. Another one was her dream job and probably a little bit better pay. And then the third one was in the ghetto and it paid the least and it was going to be the least fun. It was out of her comfort zone. And we prayed about it, knowing how the Lord works, not assuming we're just going to take the best one. And she ended up taking the worst one because the ministry opportunities we sensed might be better and the worst one. And I can tell you, and she will tell you too, for the next year and a half as we were there, it was uncomfortable. And there were not a lot of days where she was probably thinking to herself, this is amazing. It was just as miserable as she thought it would be. <laughs> be encouraged, church. We look at planting a church. We could come back to Kansas. We could go all over the place. But we, we go to Utah because we know we've got to go to hard places and bring the gospel. Because when you do hard things for the glory of God, his power shines through and it blows people away. Because they know, they know that people in and of themselves want to take the easy road. And when the church says, we're not going to take the easy road because our God is going to do amazing things in his power for his glory. Listen. Do you ever go against the grain? I know we ain't got much time, a few more minutes. Do you ever, this week, this month, this year, your life, your, your spouse, your family, whatever, do you go against the grain in anything in our culture for the sake of the Lord? Do you, are you, do you stand around others and they're like, why are you doing that again? And you say, I, because the Lord's telling us to. Is that anything that's happening because if you're not going against the grain, especially in this wicked culture, you might be on the wide road that everyone else is on. Because the narrow road cuts across the grain. Verse 24, we'll wrap up with this. And they arose and went to Zeph ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Mon in Arabah, to the south of Jeshimon. And Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Mon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Mon. And Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. So you can picture this big, tall mountain, and you got, you got all these soldiers with Saul and these soldiers with David, and they're, they're going to meet. They're going to meet. 
And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. And Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them. And then a messenger came to Saul, saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. The Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of Engedi. The last thing we see is God is in his plan. When it comes to discovering God's plan, you got to know God is in his plan. You see this divine intervention of David's life. He should be killed. All odds are pointing to him being killed. But what did God say about David's life and promise him? That he would be king. And for the glory of God, God enters into his own plan down here and says, I'm going to I'm going to divinely intervene and make sure Saul doesn't kill you. How many times you see in Jesus' ministry, you see them rebel against him, and they wanted to kill him, they wanted to rise up, and what does he do? He walks through the crowds, because it wasn't God's will for that to happen. See, this is the beauty of God's plan. You and I, we are taught, we, we are brought up in this idea that God's primary plan is about humanity, right? we picture that God is here and God has a plan for us. And God's saying, I got a plan that includes you, but it's not about you. This is, this is crucial. This is freeing. I've got a plan that includes you, but it's not about you. And when you realize that going from your own plan in life to God's plan is not just you going down this path to this path, it's about a whole nother kingdom. It's about a plan that includes you, but it is not about you. It is freeing because you don't have to worry about performance. You don't have to worry about screwing this up. God is going to save the day. When he enters his own picture, he always saves the day. He saves David's life. He, he, he sent his own son, the epitome of God entering into his own plan, the incarnation opening up the heavens to come to earth, knowing that in the midst of our brokenness, David, he's about to die. The Lord intervenes. You and I, we are dead in our sins. In the right moment, Romans says, he entered in. He died for us while we were still yet sinners. Jesus enters his own plan. God, Andy said it, God is the plan, but God is in the plan. God is in his own plan. This is, you ain't got to worry about screwing this up. You ain't got to worry about this because God isn't going to let this thing fail because his glory is at stake. And he loves us. You know we meet here to number one, help you to fall more and more and more in love with the glory of God, with the gospel. Number two, to equip you to fulfill the Great Commission to be disciple makers. I'll never forget when I was in Utah and it dawned on me one day after teaching about the Great Commission over and over and over, loving the command to make disciples because I saw it in Scripture as a command in all four Gospels in the beginning of Acts and I say, if it's going to be repeated five times, it's, it's important. The day I realized that I was not on mission for God as much as I was on mission with God, it's a little bit better. The day the pressure fell off my shoulders to perform, 
need to do just a little bit better. When I realized Jesus didn't just send his church to go do something outside of him, but filled us with his Holy Spirit, walking hand in hand, saying, you are not doing this alone. I am in my plan. I am walking with you on my very own mission was the day I realized I don't have to be Jesus to these people. Jesus is Jesus to the people. Jesus is still making disciples through his church and with his church. Let me, let me say, Tara and I, we want Silas to follow Jesus. You know, as a parent, you, you can just imagine we want our son to. But I'll tell you what, if you've ever been in this position as a disciple maker, you know sometimes it feels like you're going through the motions. Sometimes it feels like making disciples, teaching your children, teaching your coworkers, your friends, your loved ones about Jesus. It just feels powerless, doesn't it? It feels like you're just teaching them the basics and you're going and, and, and they mess up and then they don't mess up and then they kind of mess up some more and then whatever. And you're just like, okay, this is just the routine for the rest of my life. And then you see God's power and it changes everything. I've told you that Silas, even though we pray before we eat, we pray at night, we pray throughout the day, he doesn't like to pray. He just doesn't have a spiritual bone in his little two-and-a-half-year-old body. He don't want to pray. And I'm thinking, I'm like, you're the pastor's son, boy. <laughs> Please pray for daddy. Like you, <laughs> This isn't good. No, but I genuinely want him to desire to pray. And just a couple days ago, he sat down to eat his food, and a lot of times he's like, Meh. and he'll look up at us and he'll say, you pray. Like he just, he just, he just will not pray. And he prayed, and he thanked God for his food. And then he said, God, help me to sleep better tonight. He had a rough night the night before. He, nothing like that had come out of his mouth before. Tara and I looked at each other. Like, the Lord is near. The Lord is near. The next day, gets his tray in front of him for food. He says, God, thank you for this food. Help me to sleep better at night, and help me to be obedient. We looked at each other like, oh, what? He just prayed the same prayer and tacked on obedience. Like, he is going to be a pastor. Preach it, boy. Like, this is good. No, like, we, we were just like, this is, this is God. He desires. He's been talking about, he's got little boo-boos all over him. He says, he asked me today, he said, Daddy, is God going to heal this? I said, yeah, bud. I think so. And I look at this, and Tara and I, we see God in the midst of disciple-making, and we're just like, wow, this is beautiful. And I look back, I was thinking about it today, what changed? What changed? Now go, I give God all the glory and credit on all this, right? But I remember just about a week and a half ago, when I was frustrated with him before bed, and I was talking to him about prayers, and I remember I, I was trying to get him to pray for other people, and I was trying to do all these things that I try to do with you guys, but it doesn't work on you, and it doesn't work on him. And, and finally, I just gave up. I just gave up, and I said, Silas, do you see that? And I pointed to something in his room. I said, yeah. I said, God's bigger than that. Did you know that? And I pointed to something else. Do you see that, Silas? He said, yeah. I said, God's bigger than that. He said, you know mommy and daddy love you, right? God loves you more. And then the other day, we were watching Paw Patrol, and he sees little Grumble, the fattest little bulldog one. Some of you don't know what I'm talking about, but and Grumble saved the day. And I said, Si, do you know that God's bigger than Grumble? He said, Yeah. Like for him and his little world, it just clicked. You see, that's what happens 
when you point to the power of God, to the glory of God, and you say, you know what, I'm not just a servant as part of God's plan, but God is in his plan. He wants us to point to him. He is our motivation. He is the one that we're just pointing to, and he changes everything. Then you see his power, and it changes everything. God doesn't tell his church to do stuff he's not willing to empower us to do. And I'll say this. As disciple makers, you might be a disciple maker because of the command in scripture. But when you realize this is the way that God draws you to himself to experience his intimacy on earth in ways that you cannot unless you take his plan serious, then you don't just obey him because of the command. You obey him because it is so beautiful you don't want to live any other way. That's the kind of God that makes you uncomfortable and you love it. Let's pray.